Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Our guest today on Great Minds is uh, someone I had the great pleasure to meet through our mutual friend, David Jones, and Kate Robertson, of course, uh, back in, I guess it was about 2.14, Lord Billamoria, when you hosted a wonderful dinner for us for Advertising Week Europe at the House of Lords that was very, very memorable. Well, um, I remember that so clearly. What a great event it was. Yeah. And, uh, and a great gathering of the in industry from around the world in on the terrace of the House of Lords. It was, I remember yeah. it so clearly. It, it was uh, a wonderful evening and we hope to get back to that kind of thing at some point. So uh, I'd love to start, you have such an interesting background and I know both your mom and your dad came through the military. I think your dad, the legendary General Billy. And I'd love to get your reflections on how growing up as a son of a family, both parents and grandparents, with deep roots in the military, how that shaped you as a young man. Having a father who was in the army and being brought up in, in the armed forces has been a, a, a tremendous uh, influence right from my earliest memories. Uh, the fact that we had to move every two or three years uh, to different places because my father would get posted. The fact that my father would get posted to a non-family station on the Chinese border in the Indian part uh, of, of the, what we've got, Tibet in the Chinese side, you've got Ladakh on the Indian side, north, north of Kashmir. Uh, my father would be up there for a year at a time with minus 30 degrees centigrade uh, temperatures in intense and hostile conditions. And I would see my father once a year. And I remember that as a young boy waiting to see my father. Yep. So my father was in commission to the Gurkhas. The Gurkhas are the troops from Nepal and the very brave troops. And two of them had won Victoria Crosses in the Second World War. And I had the privilege of being brought up from childhood with these Victoria Cross winners. Of course, the Victoria Cross is the highest award for bravery uh, that you can get uh, awarded by the British. In, in Second World War. So th this army background and this moving around also meant that I had to constantly adapt to new places. And India, of course, is a huge, um, diverse country, the most diverse country in the world when you look at terrain, religions, races, uh, languages, it, from deserts to mountains to tropical jungles, all in one country. And, and we would go to different places and you'd have to adapt. You'd have to make new friends. And you also learn to make the most of any place. So however remote a place my father was posted, we would always find interesting people, learn about that place. And I and that curiosity that my parents instilled in me, and the appreciation of different cultures, different religions, uh, different uh, people, from different parts of, of India. Uh, I learned a lot from that. Fantastic. And eventually, through schooling, you get yourself to London. And I read a wonderful story 
about your exploits playing polo and that the quality of the equipment was poor and you decided to do something about it. I learned very early on, if you look back to you, if you ask me a question, when the earliest time you realized you were an entrepreneur, and actually it goes back to when I was eight years old and my father was posted to Southern India, commanding his battalion of Gurkhas. And I went to the local school in the area, the best school in the state of Kerala. Like the states in America, we have states in India, and Kerala is the southernmost state in India, the tip of India in the south. And I was at a school called, it called Loyola School, Jesuit school, like the current Pope, Pope Francis is Jesuit. And the, the priests were in their Jesuit robes. It was very strict. I was caned one day by the headmaster because I took comic books into school. And that was not allowed. And then they forced us to learn the local language, Malayalam. And I remember as a boy saying, I don't want to do this. Um, I do not want to learn this language. And my parents said, no, no, you must listen to what you I mean, just learn it. And I said, it's of no use to me. You're going to get posted somewhere else. And no one speaks this language anywhere else in India apart from the state. Why should I learn something that's going to be useless for the future? And they tried, kept forcing me. And then I realized I could complain as much as I wanted to, but I had to find a solution. So I went to my parents and said, why can't I learn Hindi, which is a national language of India? That'll be useful to me. Every They don't speak Hindi in this state. They don't have any Hindi teachers. Go and learn Malayalam, this language. But I planted a seed. My father went and spoke to the headmaster and said, my, my son has suggested Hindi. There must be other expats and other army officers and, and corporate children who would want to learn Hindi. Within a month, a Hindi teacher was hired and there were 26 of us in the class learning Hindi. So that's when I learned that when you see a problem, you don't complain, you find a solution to the problem. And that's the earliest I think I can go back to when I had entrepreneurial traits. And then going back to polo sticks, when I had the privilege of leading the Cambridge University polo team, we just beat in Oxford that year. And um, I managed to organize a sponsorship for us to go to India. And with my father's help, who was a serving general at the time, and Prime Minister of India, Rajiv Gandhi, who was a Cambridge alumnus himself, and the Maharaja of Jaipur, they helped me put together this tour and we played in India. And that's when I came back from India with these sample polo sticks, uh, which I then started selling to Lily Whites, uh, to the Royal Family Saddlers, Giddens, to Harrods. Um, and um, that was my first foray into business for selling polo sticks imported from Calcutta in India. Fantastic. And you mentioned some incredible names, the leaders of your native country. And, and you also talked about how growing up as a child of the military that you uh, lived in many places and really got to experience a diversity of cultures. One, one of the things that I worry about what's going on now in our country, in America and other places, is the importance of diversity, the importance of ideas that come from different cultures uh, is being, certainly in the United States, is very much under attack from our leadership. That must be painful for you to watch. Uh, and I imagine it's an issue uh, in your day job at uh, Westminster that you are very focused on, the importance of diversity and inclusion. Having been brought up in India, a country which is really so diverse in, in every way when it comes to diversity of ethnicity and religion and culture, you, you grow up. By, I remember my father in the army. You have troops that come from different parts of India, different religions, different races. 
and we will celebrate that diversity. You would you would go and celebrate the religious festivals, so the Christian festivals, the Muslim festivals, the Hindu festivals, the Sikh festivals. I'm a Zoroastrian Parsi. I come from one of the smallest minorities in the world. There are less than a hundred thousand of us. So that we learn to celebrate diversity, and we've seen throughout that when there's diversity in a company, in an organization, in an institution, it brings richness of of input, richness of mindset, of thought, and it makes it far more effective. Now, the House of Lords um, in Parliament, I remember when I was a student at Cambridge University in the 1980s, there was a, a, a big incident, and that was in the 1987 elections. We had the first four ethnic minority MPs, members of Parliament, elected to the House of Commons since the end of the empire since India's independence in 1947. And there was one member in the House of Lords who had been with my mother at University of Birmingham. So there's one Indian member of the House of Lords. And then there were these four MPs. And that was a big celebration. We had five ethnic minority parliamentarians in the House, between the House of Lords and the House of Commons. That was in 1987. In 2012, to celebrate the 25th anniversary of this, by then I was in the House of Lords myself, um, we had a step a photograph on the steps of Westminster Hall, which you may remember, the, the 900-year-old building that is part of Parliament, built by William the Conqueror's son, William Rufus. And we're, we're standing on these steps, and there were 69 of us from the different ethnic minorities, and there were five 25 years before that. So we made a, 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 there was a difference. And now, after the last elections that we had in December, we had another photograph taken on the steps of Westminster Hall, and there are over 100 of us from the ethnic minorities in both houses of parliament. Similarly, in businesses, if you look at businesses, the effectiveness, I was on the board of the biggest wholesaler in the UK called Booker, the, the Booker Prize, the famous Booker Prize that you've heard of. Um, and, and that, of course, now allows American authors. Originally, it was not. For the last few years, American authors have also been able to compete and win the prize. And the Booker Prize... Um, the company Booker is, is the largest wholesaler uh, in, in the UK, and it has now merged with Tesco, our biggest supermarket chain. I was on the board for nine years. When I joined this, it had a market capitalization of around, let's say, $400 million, and it was listed on AIM. So that's not on the main stock market, on the smaller market. In, and, and I was on the board for nine years, and I, when I joined, I was the first diversity on that board an ethnic minority member joining the board. No women, no, no diversity at all. By the time I left, left the board in nine years, we had two women on the board and me as an ethnic minority member. One third of the board was diverse. And we, we sold out to Tesco, merged with Tesco at a valuation of over $5 billion. So nine years went from 400 million to 5 billion, more than 5 billion. And I'm sure the diversity helped this board will be more effective. So I've seen it firsthand, the power of diversity. But diversity on its own is no good because you can have diversity by ticking a box saying, oh, I've got, I've got women and I've got ethnic minority, so I've ticked the box. You also have to have inclusion. It's the combination of diversity and inclusion. Then you make the diversity effective and powerful. So when you see what's going on, we both follow each other very avidly. The United States follows what's happening in the UK. And the opposite is also true. 
when you see what's happening in our country right now, where civil unrest and racism is at a height not seen since the 1960s, what comes to mind? I've just become president of the Confederation of British Industry, the, the largest um, and uh, preeminent industry body that represents one third of the private sector workforce in the United Kingdom. 190,000 companies, um, most of the FTSE 100, FTSE 250 companies. And we're also an international, we we're, represent British business on the global stage. We have an office in, office in Washington, in Brussels, in, in Beijing, in, in Delhi. And what, what uh, one of my ambitions with the CBI, I'm the first ethnic minority president in the 60-year history of the CBI. And well before the Black Lives Matter movement started just now, when I became vice president over a year ago, I said, one of my priorities is to champion diversity, ethnic minority diversity in business, in all business. And I'm now about to launch an initiative which does precisely that, including championing ethnic minority diversity on the boards of companies. So we had a Parker review that was launched uh, three years ago in 2017, a review of ethnic minority on the FTSE 100, FTSE 250 boards, and they found there was a lack of diversity. And they set a target of all FTSE 100 companies should have at least one ethnic minority member by the end of 2021, and all FTSE 250 companies should have at least one ethnic minority member by the end of 2024. They did a review of the review earlier this year, three years later, and they found that FTSE 100, 40% still did not have even one ethnic minority, FTSE 250, 60%, 60% did not even have one ethnic minority. So we still got a long way to go. So what I want to do is to champion that Parker review and to help make that um, target, make it happen. Well, it certainly starts with leadership and that's exactly what we need. And it, it mystifies me because the body of evidence tells us that companies that embrace diversity and inclusion, that they have better businesses. This is not just about window dressing. This is also about the bottom line. Mostly, the more diverse businesses are the more effective businesses. Better decision-making, more productive, more effective. So I, I want to talk about the incredible story of Cobra Beer, of course, but it's not often that we're able to speak to someone who is sitting in the room, you are in the room where it happens, quite literally, discussing the most challenging time, certainly in my lifetime. Uh, give us some insights into what's on the agenda for you on a daily basis, helping the UK navigate its way through this incredible COVID-19 crisis that we are all living with. So with a crisis that comes out of nowhere that nobody predicts, a crisis that is uh, a global pandemic, there's nothing domestic or regional, it is the whole world, a health crisis that has led to an economic crisis globally, a supply crisis and a demand crisis, a domino effect that reverberates right the way through the supply chain as well as through the world. A most challenging situation any of us have ever dealt with. And as a business, as a society, globally, we've had to adapt. Adapt very quickly. We've had to be resilient. We've had to adopt technology like we're doing right now. 
technology that is Satya Nadella, the head of Microsoft, who is an alumnus of one of the schools I went to in India, in Hyderabad. He said in the midst of the crisis that in two months, the world is adopting technology that would normally have taken well over two years to adopt. And necessity is the mother of invention. And we are phenomenally adaptive and resilient. And we've done that. And communities have pulled together. There's been a lot of collaboration. We've seen that top-down doesn't work. When the government in any country, like in the UK, tries to top-down control things, it doesn't work. When they collaborate, it works. We set up a 4,000-bed critical care hospital in nine days. Not by the government doing it on its own. The army, including the Gurkhas. The private sector, the biggest exhibition center in the UK. The National Health Service. And the local university in the area in East London all pulled together in nine days to build a hospital in four 4,000 bed hospital, and that was replicated around the country. So power of collaboration has been phenomenal. Testing for this virus, when the, the UK government was trying to control it themselves through Public Health England, didn't work. We were doing 2,000 tests a day in March. In September, that testing capacity has gone to well over 300,000, and by the end of October, it's going to be 500,000. And then we want to get to mass testing, which you've already got in the United States, where you have the ability to do mass testing now with this instant test um, 15 minute tests that we've got to strive towards, all done through collaboration. And then with the business resilience, you've got to be so adaptable. With Cobra Beer, we two thirds of our sales are through the restaurants. We supply thousands of restaurants in the UK. They were shut when the lockdown happened on the 23rd of March. And they were shut until the 4th of July, with some restaurants doing takeaways, but on the whole, the vast majority of the thousands of restaurants we supplied were shut. So our business, two-thirds of our business came to a standstill. We were then totally reliant on our sales in the supermarkets, in the grocery sector. And even there, the brewery could not produce as much as it wanted to because the brewery was also um, scaled out because there were workers being shielded. And so from a whole range of products and stock-keeping units, from cans and big bottles and small bottles and draft and different varieties of Cobra beer, from gluten-free to double-fermented Cobra to zero non-alcoholic Cobra to our Malabar India Pale Ale, all down to just one Cobra original in a big bottle, 620ml, one SKU for the supermarkets. And we had to survive on one stock-keeping unit for those three and a half months. That's how you have to be adaptable. Adapt or die. Yeah, no, it's uh, this set of cards we've all be handed in. We've all been handed, certainly not desirable, but we have to play the cards we have. And so, of course, it helps if the government helps. And the government over here in the UK has had several measures, as I know you have in the States as well, of measures to help business, job retention schemes, deferring of taxes, rates relief for properties, um, lots of help, loans, government guaranteed loans. Uh, they've all helped a great deal as well. And do you feel that, you know, I know the, the there's a new lockdown now. Do you feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel, Lord, or are we still looking at darkness? We are looking very much at uncertainty. The uncertainty and ambiguity persists. There's no running away from that. We thought we were, we suppressed the, 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 the curve, the, 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 the disease, and, and we, we were you know, uh, flattening the curve of the disease. And now it started to go up again, and it's going up very rapidly. Is this going to be a second wave? 
And what we've got also looming in front of us is potential unemployment. And what we cannot have is unemployment, we've got to protect those jobs. So it's this constant, the health situation in the economy. And uh, we have to try, of course, obviously put health first. But how do you stay on top of it? How do you allow people to work safely? So now we've suddenly, from trying to encourage people to go back to work, go back to their offices, we had an eat out to help out scheme in August where the government funded on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesdays discounts at restaurants and bars uh, for people to go and eat out to, and, and it worked. It, over 100 million meals were served with this government discount. It cost over a half a billion pounds, just under a billion dollars, and it got people out, it, uh, and it worked. It helped the industry, helped the consumer. But now we're down to a situation where the government has said all restaurants and bars have to close at 10 o'clock. And after that, you can only have a delivered takeaway. You can't even go and collect a takeaway. Um, after that, we've now gone down to more restrictive measures. We do not have a full lockdown. We have local lockdowns where there's there, there are spikes in the virus, but we do not have a national lockdown. We're doing our best, whatever it is, to avoid a national lockdown, because a national lockdown is very, very painful economically and social terms as well. We've got to try and avoid that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and we are leading a, a very parallel existence here in the States and in, in New York, where similar challenges and similar restrictions to protect us are in place. I wonder aloud, you know, we are now starting to see the cost. Our transit system, I think our, our guy, Andy Byford, now runs your transit system. Um, ridership was down about 83%. And here in New York alone, the MTA, our transit authority, has said we need $12 billion quick to keep the system going. Where is all this money going to come from as tax rolls in your country are short, we're short, the need for subsidy is there, and yet you've got this very odd dichotomy where the stock market keeps going up. It doesn't make any sense to me. We have a situation where interest rates in the UK, and I know in America as well, here we have the lowest rate of interest rates in the history of our country at 0.1%. 0.1%. The Bank of England was founded in 1694. This is the lowest rate of interest in the history of the Bank of England. And we've also had the ability, because of the lessons learned from the financial crisis and the credit crunch over a decade ago, of quantitative easing. We were able to implement quantitative easing to the tune of hundreds of billions of, of pounds. We've implemented 300 billion pounds worth of quantitative easing. Straight off the bat, because we were able to do it straight away to help out. Um, we've put in, in, in relative terms, I mean, our economy is much smaller than the UK, the US economy, but in our, for us, 200 billion pounds worth of support through all the government measures, the job retention schemes that I've spoken about. Now, people say, well, how are we going to pay it back? You've asked, how are we going to pay it back? I think now is not the time to talk about that. Now is the time to be supportive. Now is the time to make sure we retain those jobs. Then there will come the time, which we started to do in August, but now we we're in this potential second wave, which has set us back, um, you've got to restart the economy and you've got to revive the economy. And that's not the time when you start imposing extra taxes. That's the time when you've actually, in effect, got to lower taxes so that you can help businesses revive. Because the best way to repay all this is growth. 
And the best way for growth is to make sure you create jobs and retain jobs because the biggest element of the tax take in any country is the tax that comes from your employment, your PAY, your national insurance, the employment taxes that an employee plays, an employer pays. That's the biggest tax take. And the next biggest tax take is your VAT, your sales tax. And that comes from people consuming. So if you kill demand by putting up taxes, you're not going to get those taxes. And those three taxes combined make up over half the tax take in any country. It's certainly in the UK, and I'm sure in the US as well. So you've got to keep jobs and grow jobs, and you've got to grow demand, which means you've got to help the economy, not hinder the economy by putting up taxes. And then later on down the road, in a few years' time, if you you want to, you think you need to put up taxes when the economy can bear it, you can think about it. When you cut any government expenditure, you can look at that, but not now. And in terms of debt to GDP, we have a debt to GDP ratio now, which is about 100%, which is high for us. I mean, we got it down to 40% of GDP. But at the end of the Second World War, the UK debt to GDP ratio was 250%. Japan has had a debt to GDP ratio of well over 250% for two decades. So it is, if you've got very low interest rates, you can actually bear it. Um, And countries now have debt to GDP ratios of 150%. So we still have at these very low levels of interest rates in a time of crisis, I believe a buffer to take on more debt. As long as you're using that debt to save jobs, to invest in infrastructure, to increase the productivity of your economy. Fantastic. That's a great answer. So you told me a great story about how as an eight-year-old, your entrepreneurial roots really began and then continued when you were at Cambridge with bringing in better quality polo sticks. Just over 30 years ago, you had an idea and created a global brand in Cobra. And I'd be remiss not to ask you to retell that story, how it came to you and What an incredible journey it's been to build a global brand that stands alongside in your category as good as it gets. And what a success story Cobra Beer is. Well, thank you for your kind words about Cobra. It's another example of being dissatisfied as a consumer with a product or a service. And in my case, really not liking a lot of the beers I was being presented with in the UK as a student at Cambridge. I found the lager beers were very fizzy, gassy, difficult to drink. I found the English ales were were very nice in a pub, but were too heavy and too bitter uh, to consume with food. And I found that how could I go to an Indian restaurant, for example, eat some curry and have a beer that would be so refreshing and chilled to go with the spicy food, but wouldn't be gassy and bloating like the lagers and wouldn't be bitter and heavy like the ales. And so that's when the idea evolved that I wanted to produce my own beer from India because that's where I was from. And I wanted to produce an Indian beer that would have the refreshment of a lager and the smoothness of an ale combined that would be really drinkable and that would have a globally appealing taste. So somebody from the United States or from Europe or from India, from the UK, from Japan, anywhere would drink this beer and would like it because it would have a rounded, balanced taste. And I also wanted it to be the best beer in the world to accompany any food, including Indian food and curry. 
was my dream. And then you have to put your dream into reality. And I got a lucky introduction. Uh, at the, I'm in a, proud to be an alumnus through executive education of the Harvard Business School. And I remember in one of our uh, classes in, at Harvard, uh, I heard the best definition of luck. And the best definition of luck that I've ever heard is luck is when determination meets opportunity. If you're determined, you'll see that opportunity. And we got that chance introduction to the biggest independent brewery in India, in Bangalore. And they didn't make a beer of the kind that I had in mind. They didn't have a brand that was suitable. They had the best brewmaster in India who was young and dynamic and had trained in the Czech Republic, the home of Pilsen beer. And they said, come over here and sit with us. We'll open up our brewery to you and create this beer from scratch under your own brand name. And our most valuable asset, of course, is the Cobra Beer brand. And we created this recipe, which is a very intricate recipe to create this extra smooth, less gassy, balanced taste that I'm speaking about with malted barley and rice and wheat and maize and three varieties of hops uh, and double fermenting. And we've, we've got this amazing product that is uh, now distinctive and something we're very proud of and has won 121 gold medals since 2001. An amazing success story. So I, I know you're pressing with the business at, uh, at House of Lords. And just to wrap, there were so many dynamic leaders from your country in running major corporations. One of my dear friends is the global CMO of MasterCard, Raja Raja Minar. I know that you are not a small nation, over a billion people, but your achievement in business globally, you could argue that you've punched above your weight. What is it about India that is producing so many captains of industry and global leaders outside of your country? Is there an attribute? Is there something that's unique to India? that uh, a special sauce, if you will, that is creating so many dynamic leaders in industry all over the world. And this is happening. You see this more and more of Indians who were born and brought up in India like I was, who invariably come abroad to study in the States or in the UK and then go on. Um, to to become captains of industry and, and entrepreneurs. Some of them have also worked their way up through multinationals in India, the sort of Unilevers, uh, Coca-Colas of this world, and then go and get posted abroad with those companies and, and, and then go on to become heads of the companies. But look at the examples. I mean, they're one after the other. Satya Nadella of Microsoft, Sundar Pichai of Google, uh, Banga of MasterCard, uh, Indra Nui, until recently the head of Pepsi. Uh, I could just go on. Over here, Record and Ben Kisa, one of the biggest companies in the FTSE 100, uh, run by, by an Indian. Uh, and you know, uh, they are doing incredibly well. And I think that what tends to happen is you have the brightest Indians who work incredibly hard. Um, and and they, are, they are bright, but they work hard. And, and they come abroad, often not knowing anyone. And it's remarkable, and I think full credit to them in another country, building up and becoming leaders in those countries. And over here in the UK, we're in a stage now where our cabinet 
has three Indians at the cabinet table, including the Chancellor of the Exchequer, our finance minister. So the number two next down from the prime minister is an Indian, and he's 40 years old. And he is from an Indian immigrant. His parents came over from India uh, of Indian origin. He went to school in the UK, won a scholarship to Winchester College, one of our best schools, went to Oxford University, went to Stanford University, worked in finance, and at 39 years old becomes finance minister of the UK. Our home secretary is an Indian. Our business secretary is an Indian. So that's how it's only a matter of time before you have an Indian or Asian as, as prime minister of the United Kingdom. It's amazing. And, and you are not only making your country better, uh, your native country, your beloved UK, but your country is making the world better. Well, it's good of you to say that. I mean, we, we, earlier we were looked upon as the brain drain, the people who left to study abroad. So I'm the third generation of my family on both sides to be educated in the UK. Both my grandfathers, my mother, my uncle, um, and, and Nami, they all went back to India. But the people like me who didn't go back to India were, were looked upon as a brain drain. And then there was a complete turnaround in attitude by the Indian government going back to 2003, when they said, let us celebrate the achievements of the Indian diaspora around the world. And, and there are now 30 million of us, three zero, 30 million around the world. And we're one of the most successful, I say this with pride, and I'm, please forgive me for boasting, one of the most successful diaspora around the world, wherever we are. And we, I mean, if you, you know, there are now world leaders who are Indian origin. The Prime Minister of Ireland until recently was Indian origin. The Prime Minister of Portugal is Indian origin, originally from Goa. Um, you know, I, I could go on. So the achievements of these 30 million people, India now says it's not a brain drain, it's a brain gain, in that these are champions of India around the world. You can leave India, but India never leaves you. So they now encourage the Indians abroad to come back to India, to invest in India, uh, to visit India and, and, and be ambassadors in that living bridge wherever they are around the world with India. You make me very keen on having hope that the leaders of our most important governments and our most important countries can lead us through this crisis and get us to the other side. Well, well you know, on that note, one of my uh, professors who taught me at Harvard Business School and who was also the former dean of the London Business School, Professor John Quelch, right at the beginning of the crisis in March, uh, he sent a message. And, and I've, kept, I've kept it by my side throughout these six months. And it's, um, it's leading and managing through the crisis, the seven C's of leadership during the coronavirus, coronavirus crisis. And the seven C's are calm, confidence, communicate, collaborate, community, compassion, and cash. And it's so true. If you think about it, all those are absolutely relevant. Fantastic. Well, Lord, thank you so much for doing this. It was wonderful to be reunited this way. I really appreciate that. Thank you. It's so good to see you, to speak to you. Wonderful. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.